In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good morning, church. I'm Father Spencer. So good to be with you guys. Happy Advent. Happy uh, Church New Year. It's great to be starting a new liturgical year with you all. Ben kind of gave us a little bit of a primer on Advent at the beginning of the sermon or at the beginning of service, but Advent is a season of, of waiting, a season of longing and anticipation. It's the four weeks leading up to Christmas where we'll celebrate the birth and incarnation of Christ, but it's also a season of longing and expectation for Christ's return, for his second coming. Our series for this Advent uh, is The Weary World Rejoices, and so we're using each week we'll be using a different line from the hymn, Oh Holy Night, to give our sermon series a certain shape. And this week's line is, long lay the world. As in, long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Friends, today we proclaim the good news that Christ will come again, not only to rescue us as individuals, but to set all things right. Instead of bunkering down or turning a blind eye to reality as we wait for his return, today he is inviting us to join him in reconciling all things to himself. A couple of weeks ago, just after the election had transpired, one of my friends from Bible school called me out of the blue. It was right in the middle of the work week. I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday afternoon, smack dab in the middle of the day. We had not arranged to have this call. It wasn't scheduled. I didn't know that he would be calling, but I saw his name pop up and thought, oh, I better answer this and see what's going on. I answered the phone and he essentially just started off with, I don't really believe that God still speaks to people. I believe that we're in a quiet period where God has withdrawn for whatever reason. What do you think? Uh, I thought, uh, well, first of all, I wasn't really ready for this. Second of all, I'm not sure how long we're going to be able to chat on the phone because I'm right in the middle of a couple of things. And so my wheels started turning immediately. I thought, how can I possibly share with him some of the uh, thought process, the, the books that I've been reading the things that I've been deconstructing over the last eight to 10 years in a 15 minute phone call. And so I, I kind of felt a little panicky at first. And so then I just kind of asked him where he was coming from, you know, what led to him calling me that day. And I think he, he expounded on it. And initially I think what led him to this moment, although it was uh, the foundation of it was a lot deeper than this, but in the moment he had been hearing a lot of people claiming that God had spoken to them explicitly, specifically about the, the election. For instance, I don't know if any of you guys saw, but there was one person, uh, one minister that had seen a vision of Jesus going into the, the polling places or the ballot counting places and flipping over tables with ballots on them. And so this, you know, people sharing visions like this had caused my friend to realize that he was really feeling conflicted about whether or not God still speaks to people. Now that was in the moment, but his, his tension that he's living in is, is, uh, is standing on years and years of witnessing and experiencing abuse in the church uh, by people that are saying that God is with them or God is speaking to them. In fact, uh, just having known him for the last 15 or 16 years, church leaders that say that God is speaking to them that are not abusive are actually the exception and they have not been the rule in his life. And I think that that is something that a lot of us have experienced at different times and at different levels. So in the end, his question was coming from a place of, 
hearing a lot of, of people say that God is speaking to them, but them doing a lot of questionable or even heinous things or him coming from a place of not hearing God speak to him personally and sensing a lack of direction. In the end, his question has been each of our questions at one point or another. It's essentially, where is God at in the midst of this mess? Where is he? And maybe you found yourself asking it lately. Maybe you've been finding yourself asking this question in 2020. Where is God in the midst of this pandemic? Where is he at in our loss of normalcy, in our inability to be with our friends and our family members around the holidays? Where is God at in my loneliness? Where is he at in the political unrest and the simmering resentment all around us? Where is God at in the systemic and individual racism around the world, in our country, in our city, and in our state? Where is he at in the political corruption? Where is God at in the exploitation of the weak or in the marginalization of the other? Friends, the bullet points that I just listed, those are all just the American experience in this very moment, just this past week. And we're fortunate to live in a country where it's novel for our highest ranking official to try to subvert an election. So other news from around the world, just this past week in Uganda, President Yuweri Museveni, he's been in power for 36 years. So since 1986, he's been in power. And this week, he had an opposition candidate in the election arrested. And the charges seem to be kind of connived and put together out of nowhere. After the arrest, the ensuing, in the ensuing protests, at least 45 people have been killed and at least 800 people have been arrested. In Ethiopia, at least 600 people were massacred because of their race. Violence is once again escalating in Syria. And this is all without even mentioning the ongoing and ever-present climate crisis that we're facing as a planet and as a species. Friends, this is just this week. Everything is not put right, not just as individuals, but collectively, all of creation is crying out. It's groaning. Long lay the world indeed. So where is God and what are we to do? What are his people to do in the midst of this? I think that this sense of desperation, this longing is uh, very resonant with our Old Testament and our Psalm passages from this week. The prophet Isaiah starts off by saying, if only you would come down, then things would be different. Things would be set right. If you would make your name known to your enemies, the nations would tremble. And the Psalm says, wake up your power, come to save us. Make your face shine upon us so that we can be saved. Friends, Christ will come again, not only to rescue us as individuals, but to set all things right. Instead of bunkering down or turning a blind eye to reality as we wait for his return, today he is inviting us to join him in reconciling all things to himself. If only you would come, if only you would show up, then things would be different. And then in fulfillment to all these Old Testament passages, Jesus did show up. We're getting ready to celebrate this just in a few weeks. The hope that the world was longing for had finally come. In the incarnation, God showed us what he looked like in the flesh. God walked among us. And it wasn't at all what we expected or what his people expected at that time. But Jesus came to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. In Jesus, everything was changed. He showed us what God looks like. He showed us what his character is. His character is love. He showed us what real power is. 
sacrificing oneself for another. Christ came not only to redeem us from our fallen state, but to teach us a new way to be human, as we've just been exploring and learning throughout our Sermon on the Mount series. Christ inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, and in his death, he defeated death itself. He changed everything. And yet, everything doesn't always seem all that different. Friends, last week we just celebrated Christ the King Sunday, but today we still sit here in a mess. The world is in chaos. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christ's birth, but as Christians in 2020, we are still forced to reconcile with what it means to be a Christ follower in this in-between time, between the incarnation and Christ's return. We celebrate that Christ has come, but we long for him to come once again. Fundamentally, this is who we are. We are in-between-time Christians. So what are we to make of this already-but-not-yet paradox? What is God up to in the cosmos, and what does it mean to be his faithful people in the already and not yet? I'll submit to you that the church often finds itself in one of two ditches when it comes to hope. Hold on real quick. (laughs) hold on yeah thanks she told me that you're supposed to say it's pronounced ditches which I, i thought i did but i apologize if i misspoke everyone i would submit to you that the church often falls into one of two ditches when it comes to future hope in christ's return the first ditch is optimism and i'll call it aloof optimism for the sake of this sermon now this is kind of ascribing or believing in the evolutionary process. The belief here is that the human project continues to march ploddingly onward and upward towards an eventual utopia. In other words, or in short, as time marches on, creation and humanity advances. This is the myth of progress. On the other side of the ditch is despair. Now, if you subscribe or find yourself in the posture of despair, then that belief is that the world is at best irrelevant, but at worst, the world is a completely dark and evil place. There's no turning this physical realm around. So all we can do as Christians is procure a ticket for ourselves to escape this, for our soul to escape this broken physical realm. This has its its roots in Gnosticism, but it's also present in a more common sentiment of we're just passing through. We see this in uh, the Left Behind series, for instance, or we experienced this in our household a couple of weeks ago when Cameron, who you just saw, was pleading with us and crying about having to eat her broccoli. And she was begging Jesus, if you're going to come back, please come back now because I cannot finish this broccoli. Friends, the ditch of optimism and progress cannot deal with the problem of evil in our midst. This view, this approach to hope, it can't explain or eliminate cruelty. It can't explain or respond to Auschwitz, Hiroshima, sarin gas. Technology has greatly improved our lives in some ways, but in other ways, it has greatly just increased the amount of death and destruction that we are capable of. Progress and the Christian hope share a portion of the same track, but they do not arrive at the same destination. And despair, on the other hand, ignores, or even even worse, it just actively destroys God's good creation, and it ignores God's intention of restoring all creation, not just saving individual human souls. 
authentic Christian hope as we have received it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in Christian tradition is that what God has done in, in Jesus, especially in his resurrection, he intends to do for the entire cosmos. He is putting all things right in the entirety of creation. Redemption isn't just making things better bit by bit as, evolution, as the evolutionary optus would suggest, nor is it an escape from this evil material world as the despairing Gnostic view might concede. Redemption is the remaking of creation, having dealt with and defeated evil entirely. This complete redemption is what we long for and look forward to in Christ's return. This hope is what sustains us in our waiting. But what are we to do as we wait? Friends, Christ will come again, not only to rescue us as individuals, but to set all things right. Instead of bunkering down or turning a blind eye to reality as we wait for his return, today he is inviting us to join him in reconciling all things to himself. In our gospel passage this morning in Mark, it starts off with some apocalyptic language. It starts off, the sun and moon will go dark, stars will fall, planets will be shaken, and then they will see the human one coming on the clouds with power and splendor. Having grown up in a church that adopts a despairing view of future hope and eschatology, I can tell you from firsthand experience that the despairing view has embraced this language, this apocalyptic language. Surely he is coming on the clouds in splendor to get us out of here and to burn the rest of it down. I think that on the optimistic, in the optimistic ditch, people might look at language like this as some kind of extravagant metaphor. Christ's return isn't a literal thing that will happen because we're already on the right track. The passage goes on to say explicitly, no one knows when Christ will return, but watch for the signs. Somehow we've gotten this so wrong. We've taken this passage that tells us literally, don't waste your time. You're not going to be able to figure it out. No one knows. And we've made entire wings of Christianity that are completely dedicated to cracking the Omega Code. This passage closes or concludes with explicit instruction for us. It's an analogy. We are to be like servants of his household. It's like our master has gone on a trip and we are to continue working in the jobs that he's given us to do as we wait and prepare for his promised return. Friends, he has given us work to do. Jesus has given us instruction. He taught us a new way to live humanly, the way that humans were originally created to live, and then he modeled it for us. We've just been studying this in our Sermon on the Mount series. Simply put, our work is to live humanly in the midst of death. Our passage in 1 Corinthians starts off saying, God's grace has been given to you in Jesus Christ. You were made rich in him, through him in everything, your communication and knowledge. You are not missing any spiritual gift while you wait for our Lord Christ to be revealed. In the end, he will confirm your testimony. God is faithful and you were called to partnership with his son. God is faithful. You are called to partnership with his son, not to figure out when he will return, but to partner with him in reconciling the world to himself. And essentially there in the middle, you have everything you need to live humanly. You were created for this. Christ will come again, not only to rescue us as individuals, but to set all things right. Instead of bunkering down, or turning a blind eye to reality as we wait for his return. Today, he is inviting us to join him in reconciling all things to himself.
the initial desperation in our Isaiah passage this morning is followed by the prophet Isaiah saying, you act on behalf of those who wait for you. You look after those who do right. There's a certainty in the promise of God that he will return. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say, but all of our good works fall short. They're like filthy rags. And he concludes with saying, but now you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are in your hands. I would submit to you, friends, that the sacraments are our entry point into living out this reality and this in-between time. Our continued celebration of them builds us up and it sustains us in the work of partnering with Christ and his mission of reconciliation. We repent and we confess. We acknowledge that Christ taught us the way to the true way to be human. And we put our ideas about what it means to be human aside and we follow those. We start anew in baptism. And this is analogous to this language in Isaiah about the clay and the potter. Anybody that's tried their hand at pottery knows that it doesn't matter how badly you mess up the piece that you're working on. You can always, if it breaks down and crumbles over, all it takes to start anew is a little bit of water. And this is the same is true for each of us, friends. As we name, confess, and repent of our sins and attempt to follow Jesus through the waters of baptism, he is faithful to meet us in that. In the Eucharist, each week, past and present are one, and together they point towards this forthcoming reconciliation, not just of us to God, but of all things. We taste the new creation on our tongues, and we get it in our bodies so that we can go out and do the type of work that helps to usher in God's kingdom. And when we fall short, or when we don't feel like we have what it takes to keep going, it is the promise of Christ's second coming that sustains us. That's why each week we proclaim this good news to each other twice. We say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And in the creed each week we say he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never end. This is foundational to our faith, friends. This is Christian hope. This is what sustains us as a people of hope and not of despair in this in-between time. The church's mission is in and to the real world. We cannot ignore or marginalize reality. Instead, we are called to claim it for the kingdom of God, for the lordship of Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of the ways that we can embark on this mission is by loving God and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. By naming and fighting against injustice anywhere that we see it. By always telling the truth. By loving those who would call us their enemies. By affirming the humanity of others. By living humanly in the midst of death. By being present to suffering. Our own and the suffering of those all around us. N.T. Wright says it like this. He says that we are called to learn to live as wide awake people. We're called to be wide awake to reality and pain, but also to, to live wide awake to and rooted in the hope of Christ's second coming. And it's the latter that empowers and sustains the former. So how is it that we can say yes to this good news today, friends? How can we respond to this? I would submit to you that living in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic is a very concrete way that we can explore and discern how God is calling us to live faithfully in this in-between time. Are we adopting a posture of optimism 
where we just are kind of aloof of the numbers and the news and the facts. And we just want to go around as if everything is normal. One example of how I've seen this happen and play out is uh, in sporting events. I, I watch a lot of soccer and right when the soccer league started back up, there was nobody in the stands, but when you watch on TV, they've been pumping in sound just to like make you not reckon with the fact that things aren't as they should be. This is like a weird virtual reality. So when it comes to the virus, are you adopting a posture of optimism? Do you find yourself despairing? What does it look like to live out Christian hope in the midst of this, this crisis? What does it look like to look these numbers in the face, the risks in the face, both for people's health, but their mental health, for their emotional wellness, for the financial realities that it could mean for individuals and for the country? and to also actively look for a way to love your neighbor responsibly. This is how we work out our faith. This is how we work out what it means to be the people of God in this in-between time. If this feels too big, if this feels too broad, if you're unsure of a personal way to say yes to this good news, then I want to pass on a piece of practical advice. Uh, it's a quote that I heard from Mother Teresa once that she gave to somebody that was asking how they could help. She simply said, when you come across someone who is convinced that they are absolutely alone, try your best to convince them that they are not. And I want to leave you with that today, friends. When it feels overwhelming, when we're not sure what to do in the scope of this eschatological moment that we're in, in this in-between time where we're longing for Christmas to celebrate Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago, but when we're longing for his return, for all things to be set right, and you don't know how to move towards the other, find someone who's convinced that they're alone and convince them, work to convince them that they're not. Friends, Christ will come again, not only to rescue us as individuals, but to set all of creation right. Instead of bunkering down or turning a blind eye to reality as we wait for his return, today he is inviting us to join him in reconciling all things to himself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.